Welcome to the first edition of the Colorado Child Abuse and Neglect Attorneys Podcast. I'm Charmaine Britton, Director of Organizational Development at the Butler Institute for Families at the University of Denver and Director of this project. And I'll be your host for this series. In this first episode, we are discussing the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and what role county attorneys play in compliance. ICWA was passed in 1978 and addressed the long and difficult history of American Indian and Alaska Native children who were taken from their tribal nations and tribal communities and cultures and placed into non-Native families and communities without proper legal process, acknowledgement of tribal sovereignty, or consideration of culture and human or civil rights. ICWA was enacted to, quote, protect the best interests of American Indian and Alaska Native children and to promote the stability and security of Indian tribes and families. The goal of this legislation was to provide support to Native families, reduce the placement of children with non-Native families, and increase communication between the child welfare system and Native children's tribes and families. Unfortunately, compliance with ICWA has been a struggle for jurisdictions and agencies, resulting in the continued violation of rights for tribal nations and American Indian and Alaska Native children, youth, and families, and overrepresentation of Native children in out-of-home care, and disparities in service provision to Native children involved in the child welfare system. Also, since the enactment of ICWA, there have been far too many cases that go to court, are often appealed due to lack of compliance, whether the child is American Indian or Alaska Native or not. This podcast will discuss the importance of ICWA and the county attorney's role in making sure there's full ICWA compliance. To discuss these issues and take a close look at the history and future of ICWA, I've invited Catherine Redhorse, an Indian Child Welfare Specialist with the Colorado Department of Human Services, and Shannon Meddings, an Assistant City Attorney with the Denver City Attorney's Office. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks so much for being here today. I'd like to start off with this question for you, Catherine. Why is ICWA important from a child welfare perspective? Good afternoon, and thank you for inviting us here to participate. ICWA is really important just in the practice of child welfare as a whole. We are looking as the Colorado Department of Human Services at family preservation, and that's what ICWA really focuses on, is not only family preservation, but also cultural preservation as a whole. It was uh, originally created to address the disproportionality of Native children being removed from their families and placed in non-Native homes, which is taking away not them only from their families, but also from their culture. Okay, great. That's, that's important to note, that it's not just about the children, it's also about the culture. Shannon, my next question for you is, what about from a county attorney's perspective? Why is ICWA important? Good afternoon, and thank you for having me as well. I think from a county attorney perspective, I think about what my role is, and my role is always to look at upholding the law, 
advising my client, which is the Department of Human Services, what the law entails and what their duty or role is with that as well. And the Indian Child Welfare Act, which I believe you discussed earlier on, has been in, in place now for 40 years. And however, we have not done a great job as a nation or states or counties of applying it. And when you look at what it stands for, as Catherine spoke about and to echo some of her comments, I see it really aligning with the goals and values of my client, the department, where they really want to look at how do we reunify families, how do we keep families intact, whether that's with parents or the larger family structure. And ICWA really gives a fantastic framework for doing that. However, as we said, over the 40 years, it's really often been overlooked. Mm, that's, that's a really important point. I love your comment about it being in conjunction with the goals and values of the department. So Shannon, this question is also for you. So whose responsibility is it to ask about ICWA? That's an area where there really is a lot of good guidance from federal law all the way down to state and laws and case law. So if you look at the Federal Act that was started in 1978, it talks about that the party who is bringing the action to remove the child, it's their duty to provide notice to the tribe. So in most instances, that's going to be the Department of Human Services or the county. However, in the years since it was passed, there, have, there has also been case law in some states that said it's also the role of the judiciary to, to provide that notice. In the last couple of years with the implementation of the federal regulations, that has really made it more clear whose role it is. And it states that at every child custody proceeding, it is the duty of the court to inquire about whether this child is eligible for enrollment or if there's reason to know that this child is eligible for enrollment or an enrolled child. Then it falls upon everyone else to inform the court. So the, the regs go ahead and go further to state that any officer of the court, any participant, all have a duty to let the court know if this child is eligible or an enrolled member of a tribe or if there's reason to know. That inquiry by the court is supposed to be done on record and it's supposed to be done at every child custody proceeding. So not just initially when a case is filed. It should also be done if there's a change of placement and then when you are looking at some type of final arrangement for the child such as permanent custody or termination and adoption that duty never leaves the court or the parties to continue to inquire about whether this child is eligible or not. Further, state law states that it's a continuing duty of the department to inquire throughout the course of the case and that also each county or department should state in their petition what knowledge they have about this child's heritage and if they believe the child is not eligible or there's not reason to know that the child is eligible under the Indian Child Welfare Act, then they're to state what efforts they made to determine that. And then lastly, we also have pretty recent case law that talks about whether you're the guardian ad litem, the parent's attorney, 
the county attorney, or the judge, that we all have a role in figuring this out. I'm curious, what happens if the Child Welfare Agency does not state that in the petition? Then it's incumbent upon the court, to, in my opinion, to catch that and to bring that up to the county that they have not looked into this, as well as, again, I think it's a continuing duty of all the other parties involved as well to bring forth whatever information they have that may show that this child, that ICWA would apply to this child. Thank you. Uh, Catherine, would you have anything to add to that? Shannon did a great job in explaining it, and I think maybe the one thing I would add on, just part of the active efforts of it, is to inclusive all parties throughout the, the range of the case, which it includes asking extending family. So if grandparents, aunts and uncles, even if they have a close family friend that does attend a family engagement meeting per se, it is going to be up to the facilitator and the caseworker, all those that are in attendance of the, to the family engagement meeting to ask if they have any knowledge if the child is an eligible for enrollment or an enrolled member of the tribe. Okay, so that means that the responsibility to ask not just mom, not just dad, but grandparents, close family friends to make sure that any opportunity to establish a child as American Indian or Alaska Native is made. That's correct, and I would, would agree with Catherine that that is something that's stated both in the RAGS and in state law, that you're not, you should go beyond just those family members and asking relatives, and again, to continually ask. Okay, okay. Ask early, ask often. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Why is it important to attend to ICWA, Catherine? It is not only a federal act. It is actually there to, in the best interest of children and family. And I think a lot of child welfare agencies will attest to it. It is in the best practice. We're looking at preserving families. And so part of ICWA is providing active efforts. A part of that is providing those services before children are removed from their families. And if in instances that they need to be removed for the safety of the children is providing children and the parents and family those services in order to reunify. There have been several studies indicating that culture plays an integral role in a child's life and raised with family values and that is part of Native culture. And there have been a lot of testimonies from children that have been placed in foster families outside of Native families and they have gone back to the tribe. I recently attended a meeting with the Navajo Nation and we were able to attend one of their tribal council meetings and one of the council members was a child that had an open child welfare case, he was now an adult, but had been placed with relatives. And he thanked all of those professionals who are in attendance to that meeting for applying ICWA to his case because he was able to go back to his Navajo family, and he was able to practice those, those Navajo beliefs and cultures, and now he is bringing it back to his community and giving back to his tribal council members. And he was in tears when he was telling the stories. So I think it goes above really looking at it as just an act or a policy, that it, it really has an impact on children's lives as a whole and families' lives as a whole. So that's incredibly poignant. Thanks for sharing that. But can you speak a little bit about why children really are so important to tribal nations? 
I believe all communities believe children are important. They're our future. A lot of Native communities will look at looking forward in the future to the seventh generations. So we're not making decisions now just for the next generation. We're looking at making those decisions on how it impacts seven ge generations ahead. Could you tell me more about seven generations and I guess what happens when children leave the Native culture then they are no longer one of those seven generations in the future? Right, so again, ICWA is really looking at family preservation and cultural preservation. So that is something that is taught to children growing up, being raised. A lot of that cultural values within Native, Indigenous communities is really looking at how can we as people serve our community as a whole. And when looking at our children, we raise our children as a community. When, you're, when a community raises children as a whole, the ch child learns how to give back to the community as an adult. So it's sort of a full circle process in that aspect. Can I add to that for a second? Yeah, sure. Just from, from I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all county attorneys, but being involved with ICWA cases over the last couple of years more in depth than I was prior to that. When you do look at the historical nature of what's happened to Native American communities from the boarding school era of the 1890s up to the 1950s or so. And then you had the Relocation Act that took us forward to the 1970s and then entering the federal government designing and implementing the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's now existed for 40 years. But all of those different things, those actions, leading up to the Indian Child Welfare Act were, were periods of time where, from my understanding, children were removed from their native homes. They were taken away to assimilate into middle-class Western culture. The Indian Child Welfare Act was a way to try to restore that, but then for four, in the next 40 years, we somewhat squandered that. So we are now, what, going on at least five generations of people, at least, from the 1890s who were taken away from their culture, where that has left a hole, I think, for, for that culture. And I think that's really why it's important, or at least one perspective of why it's important that we attend to this, so that all tribal nations have an opportunity to bring their, their children back and to bring back their people that, that were taken away from them without their choice. And I think even in that aspect as well, there is a lot of historical trauma that the Native communities as a whole have experienced. But I also want to just make a comment that ICWA applies to enrolled tribal members. And as enrolled tribal members, they have a special political status Correct. with the U U.S. government. So it's a government-to-government -government relationship and it goes beyond the race or ethnicity is that they have that relationship and they have that right to follow all of these duties, these treaties that are historical within the U.S. government. So I just want to thank you for bringing up the history of ICWA because that's an important, plays an important part of why ICWA compliancy is so important currently. And I, I also want to piggyback off that because I believe the political status is often overlooked and when we look at lack of compliance we for whatever reason ICWA has just been sort of put on the shelf and we look at it as a way to possibly repair I, I look at it as often a reparation act 
to repair what we've done, but often overlooking that this isn't just something that's nice to do. We have a duty to do it, and there is this. They are a sovereign nation, and they have a right to have their children back, and they have a right to make decisions about their children. Right. So we're talking about two things here, tribal sovereignty uh, and where it's a separate nation, just like we would interact with Canada or Mexico. Yes. The tribal nations have sovereignty over their children and also the historical trauma. And I appreciate you bringing that up and, and just the impact that that has had on generations of children and families. Let's talk now about some of the issues related to ICWA. What are the cases that are coming back on appeal about? Shannon, can we start with you? Sure. I think it's important to note, as we, we've maybe said a time or two already, that over the 40 years that the Act has existed, it really hasn't been implemented that well, whether it's in Colorado or other states. I think we've made a lot of strides in the last few years, and some of that is because our Court of Appeals are at the appellate level. They've sort of taken ICWA on as a special project and said, we need to do better. And they are really looking at it from the beginning of what's required in an Indian Child Welfare Act, which is you are supposed to ask and inquire at every child custody proceeding whether the Indian Child Welfare Act applies or not. So the majority of cases that are coming back at the appellate level or being remanded back to the counties are due to insufficient notice where the counties are not inquiring either at the beginning of the case or there's something deficient with the notice if they do inquire, such as a family says, I believe I have Apache heritage, but they don't send to all the Apache tribes, or they send to the wrong bureau, or they don't have complete notices, meaning that they've not provided to the tribe some of the information that's necessary and required by the regulations for the tribe to be able to make a sufficient determination of whether this child is eligible or an enrolled member. So in the last couple of years, counties throughout Colorado have seen, have experienced that. Probably not every county, but the, many of them have, whether it's a metro county or a small county. And I think it's important for us to remember that can't look at a person and determine whether they're native, have any native heritage or not. And that's why it's important to ask. The other part of notice where cases are coming back quite often or being remanded are with regard to uh, continual inquiry. So the Court of Appeals has issued some opinions upholding the regulations and also the act that talks about you are to inquire at every child custody proceeding. So not only that initial hearing, but also anytime there's a change in placement or you're looking at termination and al or allocation of parental responsibilities. All of those are considered child custody proceedings, but as a system, we forget that we are to continually inquire. And so cases are being remanded to ensure that we are doing that from the beginning. Other areas where there have been appellate decisions in recent years have to do with when a tribe has responded that this case is eligible 
under the Indian Child Welfare Act have been with regard to active efforts, have been with regard to what's called QEW or Qualified Expert Witness Testimony, what's required uh, from that, and then also looking at placement preferences and whether the department the counties are doing a good job of investigating what type of placement preferences are available to this child before placing the child in a non-Indian home. Do you have any examples of this, experiences that you've had where cases have come back on appeal? I do, and there's a point I want to make about it. We've had some cases in Denver that have certainly been returned due to insufficient notice. I can't say that any of those have resulted in then learning that a child was eligible under the Indian Child Welfare Act. However, the point I think that the Court of Appeals is trying to make and what we are learning from those remands is that you're holding up permanency for a child for not getting it right the first time around. And what I mean by that is normally in what's called an EPP case, an expedited permanency planning case for children who are under the age of six, that child should be in its permanent home within a year. If the department is not in a position to return that child within a year, then the department usually takes some type of action to look at permanency for the child, whether it be permanent custody with a relative or the most drastic alternative of having to terminate a child's parental rights. If that's the route that's taken and then that is appealed, that appeal can take anywhere from six months to a year. And lately, it's been taking more of the, on the longer time frame. If that case is then remanded 12 months later, then you have to clean up what the issues were for the remand, which were probably send, sending proper notice for either you forgot to send to a particular tribe or you sent insufficient notice in the first place. So then you're taking another two to three months at least, cleaning that up, and then it goes back to the Court of Appeals to review to determine whether you have done that sufficiently to then issue an opinion to determine whether they are, the Court of Appeals is going to uphold that termination. That is then taken an extra year and a half at least to hold up the permanency for that child. So instead of taking a year, it's taking two and a half years. That's a third of that child's life. Could be. Or, or for more. some children, all of their life, especially if the case opened when they were born. I think you make a great point in delaying permanency, and I think that's why it's so important to inquire at all avenues of hearings, family engagement meetings, any when a caseworker does any home visits to any of the family members, it is really important. So once we know whether there is reason to know if a child is eligible or enrolled, we can start that process right away. So what are the frustrations related to ICWA? From just experience working with families, I one of the frustrations I think I see is the not understanding ICWA completely, and I think that would may possibly inhibit them giving up that knowledge whether they are a tribal member or eligible. I think families without understanding completely how ICWA works, they, not be, they may not be as forthcoming. Forthcoming, forthcoming in providing whether they are a tribal member or not. 
and I think that brings frustration to caseworkers on that end, to all the professionals, and not really understanding why. And that goes again about how the government had, had treated their native population beforehand. That trust did not in governmental agencies. So if a family doesn't trust a governmental agency, they're not going to be just giving up all their information that that family has, which can delay cases. I think that gives frustration to the family. I think it gives frustrations to the on the professional side as well because of that lack of understanding. I also feel like when professionals don't understand that history behind ICWA, they see it as additional paperwork, additional work, and they don't necessarily understand why ICWA is important to follow. Wow. So how can professionals help families understand the importance of ICWA? I believe it goes back to just best practices. If you're working with a family, you're going to want to develop that relationship. And with relationship development, you're going to develop that trust. And once that trust is there, then the family is going to be open to what is going to be best for this family, what services are going to be most appropriate for this family. Shannon, what are the frustrations around the ICWA for county attorneys? I think some are the same as what Catherine spoke of, in, at least in general terms. I would say some of it is lack of understanding from both what's required from the act and why. Why is this important, that historical perspective? They, they can see it maybe as adding a lot of extra steps that, again, if you don't understand why they're there, then they don't see them as necessary. I think also that at times it could be viewed because there are a lot of additional steps or efforts that have to be made that it's slowing down the process for permanency for children. I think as we spoke about just a few minutes ago with regard to our Court of Appeals and the point that they're trying to get across is that really the impediment or the slowdown really comes from not following it on the front end. It doesn't have to slow down your case. I also think, I don't want to say that this is something that just is a county attorney issue, but maybe even for the departments, the caseworkers, our clients at times, understanding or feeling confident that this child is going to be safe. That's an obstacle at times for people to really understand that Native homes can provide just as secure, safe home as what our system provides. It may look different. It may not look like again, what our sort of middle-class values think it should look like. But that doesn't mean it's not still a safe home. So I think at times there's some distrust there around that issue. And I think the other thing that can often come up is when you look at then implementation of the Act from the perspective of active efforts to rehabilitate the parents, active efforts to find appropriate placement, that especially if you're, I, I will say, maybe if you're a small county, but maybe also if you're a large county, lack of resources and time. It does take more time to do this the right way. And now we're talking about culturally responsive practice, which is incumbent upon all of us in the child welfare system. Yes. Catherine, could you speak to the fear and biases that caseworkers might have 
in regards to putting children and keeping children in Native homes and how that might impact decision-making? I think it goes back to Shan what Shannon was saying is just having that that trust and really it goes back to tribal sovereignty is that we have to look at tribal nations as we're working with another, another government and one of the ways to look at it is like you said mentioned it's like working with families that are from Mexico or from Canada if we if we had a Canadian child in Denver or if within Colorado we wouldn't think twice about saying let's give this child back to Canada and have them open up a case or place the child where we wouldn't investigate where that child is going to be placed because it's not our jurisdiction and I think that's uh, one of the things that we have to look at is that really realizing and understanding tribal sovereignty and that we cannot place our own biases on what we believe on it. So tell me more about placing our own biases on what we believe. It really goes back to why ICWA was put in place. When we look at children, we have, I think that we have this definition of what safe is. And we don't look at how it affects the child later on in adulthood. So when we are thinking at safety, we're looking at this middle class system of shelter, running water, electricity, having cable TV, a cell phone. But when we're looking at really the true safety and how a family separate children from their parents, what the impact is long term. When we take children away from the culture and their values, they have, they lose a part of themselves. And I think we can attest to that now currently is that we have Ancestry.com where everybody is really excited because they want to know where they came from. They want to know what's embedded in their DNA because they want to feel a culture and a value. And that's what we're looking at now. So why can we how can we um, apply that to taking away children from our Native communities? It's the same thing, is that children want to know where they came from, they want to know their family members, they want to know their culture, and when we remove them from their families, we're taking that away from them. So it really sounds like there are two main things to consider here, the cultural aspect and the legal aspect. And those two are so intertwined, and that's an important Thing that we have to remember about ICWA. It's not just about the law and it's not just be about being culturally responsive. It's about both. Do you have anything to add to that? I think um, when we're looking at culture, one of the things that really when we're looking at, the, at following the legalities of behind ICWA, we have to remember what culture means and it's not just if the children do have to be placed in a non-native home, which is most likely if you're living in an urban area because there are a, a, there are a lack of native fam foster families within urban within Denver metro area. We're not looking at for the foster family to take them to powwows or to read about them in the books is that we cannot replicate how these children would have been raised if they were being raised by their biological family culture is so ingrained in each of us, your day-to-day -day practice, those values that cannot be taught. And I think as much as we try to embed culture, when a, children has, a child has to be placed in a non-native family, that it cannot be replicated. And I think that's really important to state. I agree. Thank you.
So, how do we move away from attending to ICWA as merely a requirement or an excuse and instead really embrace the spirit of ICWA? I kind of go back to what I said earlier of thinking about how the spirit of ICWA and really the requirements of ICWA align with the values of child protection practice these days. And it may not have been this 10, 20, even 30 years ago, well, it wasn't 30 years ago, but maybe not even 10 years ago, where departments valued placing with family, departments valued ensuring that a child has the best opportunity to have a part of their culture as much as they can, that the departments valued while their charge was always to return the child to a parent, what are the avenues that they go about, the tools that they use to do that. I think departments really look at how they can do that because we've learned, I think, over the decades that the system does not raise children well. The best way to raise a child is to put them back with their family unit, whether whatever that looks like. And it may not be the traditional mom and dad. It could look very differently. And I think that's what the Indian Child Welfare Act has said for 40 years. And I'll use an example of where I feel like my county is coming around to that. Recently, because we have an Indian Child Welfare Act court, we've been doing a lot of trainings with uh, the caseworkers. And I was conducting a training here recently about the differences between how you treat an ICWA case and maybe how you treat an, a non-Indian case. And a caseworker raised her hand and said, why do we have to do this in these cases versus other cases? And her supervisor and I kind of quickly said, that's an all-day training, probably to try to explain to you um, some of what we've talked about today, the historical trauma, the political differences of why it's required. But her supervisor said, as we've also said today as well, this really is about what we as an agency want for our families and what is best practices. And the caseworker said, kind of sat back and goes, I, I don't think you all understood my question right. I was really kind of asking, why aren't we doing this in all cases? Makes sense. Catherine, do you have anything to add to that about attending to the spirit of ICWA as we do casework? I, I echo what Shannon said. I think it really is attesting that ICWA is best practice to be upheld when all child welfare cases is that we want to look at how do we preserve families and how do we reunify families, knowing that that is the best place for a child. There's been several studies about attachment that was one of the frustrations to your earlier question is that I hear when infants, when children become attached to their foster families, they are concerned about breaking up that bond and placing the child with a native or with their kinship. That question has been brought up several times. And really, if you look at the studies, when children become attached and form those skills to become attached to their caregivers, they utilize those skills in attaching to other caregivers as well. So we're not breaking the attachments, what we're doing is strengthening them. And what we're doing is placing them with their family and kin kinship placements where they can learn their cultural values and utilize those attachment skills that they've learned while being placed in a healthier environment for their time, that time period.
going back to the spirit of ICWA, again, it's best practices. I think we all need to understand why, why ICWA is in place and really respect the relationship that sovereign, tribal sovereign nations have with the U.S. government. Really, it goes back to it's the federal act, the respect that we have towards our, our indigenous communities. Can you give me an example of when ICWA has made a difference in a child and family's life? I, I have a case right now where it's with the Navajo Nation. Child is very medically fragile and initially we could not place anywhere except in foster care. There were no family members in the metro area. We did reach out to the Navajo tribe right away to see if they had any placements. They did not. And again, as I spoke about earlier, having that cooperative relationship with them, they knew we were working and trying to find that placement, but agreed that foster care, a medically fragile foster home, in fact, was what was needed and necessary to keep this child safe. We were unfortunately not able to return this child to the care of a parent. The mother is now deceased and the father has not been around for the last several months. However, through working with the Navajo Nation, they have been able to identify a family member who has now since become a certified home, who has met the child and seen his needs, has visited with him on occasions. We, the department, have worked in conjunction with the foster family to then take the child for a visit to the relative's home on the reservation. And we're in the process of being able to transfer that child to that relative's care we anticipate on a permanent basis. I think prior to our ICWA court and establishing those relationships, especially when you look at the particular needs of this child. It would have been hard-pressed to get the department, the guardian ad litem, and maybe even the court to think that that was possible. What's the single most important piece of advice you can offer to county attorneys related to ICWA? Shannon? I asked a couple of attorneys in my office, and the resounding message was, somewhat twofold or maybe the same message, but just do it. Just follow the act and inquire, inquire, inquire. You don't know if a child is a native child or not unless you ask. And if they are, then apply the requirements of the act. It really isn't that difficult. It may seem like it is because maybe it's foreign to you in some respects. But you do not have the authority to pick and choose as a county attorney what laws you follow and which ones you don't. And I think you really don't have a choice but to just do it, to follow it. Catherine, do you have anything to add to that? I think Shannon said it pretty simple, just to follow it. Again, making those assumptions. Nobody has the right to assume whether or not a child is native or non-native whether they practice cultural norms or they do not. It's up to the tribe to determine that. And really just always remembering the impact that following ICTWA has on a child and their life.
Thank you both so much for your time today. I know that I have a much better understanding of the importance of ICWA for both the judicial and the child welfare system. In summary, the county attorney should address three main aspects of ICWA. First, does ICWA apply? American Indian and Alaska Native ancestry cannot be determined by appearance or family name. So caseworkers and county attorneys should assume that ICWA applies to a case, to any case, until they have enough information. Ask the family early and often throughout the court process. Number two, notify the appropriate parties. If ICWA applies, contact must be made with the tribes and the court must comply with transfer of jurisdiction if requested. And then finally, number three, ICWA requires that agencies make active efforts, which means proactively connecting families with meaningful and appropriate services rather than just identifying the services available. Thank you for joining us today.